Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus. I have to give uh, Jerry a, a quick apology. Um, Jerry, I told you on Wednesday that we would be in Joel next week. I was looking at the passage in Joel, and it's in chapter 2, verse 13 particularly, and I thought, man, I, I need to preach a lot more than this. I really need to preach the whole book. <laughs> and uh, that requires a lot more study than I had time for this week. So um, I'll be getting deeper, digging deeper into to Joel this coming week. And uh, today we're going to, to spend a lot of time in the Psalms especially. But we'll start in Exodus, which is really where we have started this whole series of sermons on our glorious God. If you knew that the glory of God awaited your discovery just on the other side of that mountain, you have to imagine it in your mind. We don't have any mountains, of course, but just on the other side of yonder mountain, would you climb it? Would you climb? Would you go into the heights to see the glory of God? If God beckoned you up and said, I will show to you all of my goodness and I will proclaim to you my name. If you knew that the way was going to be treacherous, would you still go? If you knew that you would get hurt making the climb, but that you would make it safe and you would live to see the glory of God, would you fear the steep places? Or would you still go? We open up the word of God as the people of God to hear through eyes of faith, behold the glory of God. And it is waiting our discovery. If you had that promise that Moses did that I will show you my glory, I think that we would climb the mountain with a, a great sense of anticipation for the words of God that we would so powerfully hear and whatever physical vision awaited us, we would have great anticipation. We'd have drive that would be our fuel. So it's a spiritual vision. Does that deter you? Does that unexcite you? Whatever would be the opposite of exciting. Would, does that unexcite you? that it's spiritual, that it's in the word that we may behold his glory? Well, it shouldn't. The impulse that is driving this series of sermons is the thought that we may see the light of the glorious God. It's the invitation of Jesus that drives us as we study when he said, come and see. That's what we want as his people. So we began this series in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18 where Moses cries out to the Lord, please show me your glory. And we continued with God's answer, the awesome glory revelation from God to Moses in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Today, what I want us to do is continue to take in the effects of beholding the glory of God. What effect does this have on our lives? We started that three Sundays, or two Sundays ago, I believe it was. We saw that, of course, in seeing the glory of God, we cannot help but praise Him. You, you perceive God, 
And you prize God, you will praise him. You will praise him. And then last week, we were looking at how the glory of God turns us to pleading, turns us to praying. And today, we're going to continue to take in the effects. But first, before we move any further, I, I want us to kind of do a recap and, and ask the question or answer the question, what is his glory? We started talking about that the word kabod for glory in the Old Testament means weight. We were talking about the weightiness of God, that there is no greater weight in, in all the universe. He is the weightiest being. But there's an, another sense besides weight and worth. It's also the display. So we were talking about the beauty and the worth of who God is shining forth, his perfections shining forth. That's, that's the glory of God. But in Exodus 33, I think God really defines and describes what his glory is as he, as he tells Moses what he will encounter there in the heights of Sinai. He said that his glory is his goodness displayed and his name declared. That's the glory of God. So turn your eyes to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. And it says that from the cleft of the rock where God's covering hand protected him, Moses was enabled to see the back part. Not the face, but the back part of the glory of God, the trailing edge of his glory. And he bowed to the earth and worshipped. Just a vision of the afterglow of his glory will take your breath and bow you to the ground. Okay? But as stunning as the glory revelation was and remains, it is not, let's say it again, it is not the final answer to the plea of the people of God, Lord, show us your glory. An amazing vision of God's glory. The supreme revelation from God to his people in the Old Testament, but it is not the final answer to our prayer, show us your glory, Lord. What am I going to say next? Jesus is. You knew it, right? Jesus is. Jesus, who said, Moses wrote of me. Moses is the author, human author, of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And, and Jesus said, Moses wrote of me. It's Jesus. Jesus is the final answer to our prayer, show us your glory. Jesus, who is the exact imprint of the nature of God in the flesh. Jesus who is the glory of God on the ground. Jesus, who is the living word. Jesus, who is the glory of God radiating. Jesus, who is the glory of God dwelling with us. Jesus is the final answer. Jesus is the face of God. Jesus is, who said to the Father, 
Remember what God said to Moses? I will proclaim my name to you. Jesus is the final answer to that proclamation. Jesus who said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world and said, I have made, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So what are the effects of the awesome glory revelation from God fulfilled in His Son on us? What are the effects in our lives? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help. Father, we pray that the vision of Your glory would have effect in us. First of all, we pray with Moses, please show us. Because just seeing the letters and the words and the paragraphs on the page will not be the vision of your glory. We must have eyes of faith, Father. And on our own, we confess to you that we don't have those eyes of faith. Would you please hear our prayer in Christ to give us those eyes? I pray, Father, that you would repeat spiritually the miracle that happened to Saul um, after his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. When your disciple Ananias came to him and, and promised that he would receive the Holy Spirit and immediately fell from his eyes something like scales. Do that for us. Give to us your Holy Spirit. And I pray that the scales, the blinders, would fall from our spiritual eyes and we would behold you. Father, I pray that you would, in your Son, take center stage here. Stand in the light and let us see. And I pray that our response would glorify you. Please help me. Please fill me with your Spirit that I would have but one ambition, your glory and the good of your people. I ask for your mercy and grace in Jesus' name. Amen. What are the effects of the glory revelation on us? What does the glory of God that was declared to Moses and is declared through Jesus, what does that do to you? As soon as you have seen the glory of God once, for real, and I'm not talking physical vision, but spiritually. Once you have seen the glory of God for real, the glory of God will remain the light of your hope forever. That will be the effect. We, the people of God, seeing His glory, will be spurred on to persevere in hope. We will have hope. Though everything else in our life goes dark, Though circumstances are, are dark, though our sin within us is dark, this will remain the light, the glory of God, and it will never go out. So church family, I am exhorting you, I am urging you today to keep your eyes on the glory of God that has been proclaimed to us ultimately in Jesus God's Son, and you will have hope.
no matter what your circumstance, no matter what other people are doing against you, no matter what God seems to be doing against you, seems to be, your hope in God will remain if you keep your eyes fixed on His glory. So I want to talk about a couple of things about our hope and how it is... Um, it remains, it's, it's awakened and it's, it's kept alive by our vision of the glory of God. I want to talk about hope for righteousness and hope for rest. First of all, we're going to deal with that most fundamental thing. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms now. In Psalm chapter 5. Psalm 5. Let's start with the, the fundamental thing and our fundamental need. Let me ask you, sinner that you are, what hope do you have to enter God's house? Sinner that you are, what hope do you have to enter God's house? Look at Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6. We have God on record saying, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So what hope is there? Start in verse 7. But I, and you just want to clamp your hand over David's mouth and say, oh, hold up, David. Do you even know yourself? Look at what the Lord says again. Think about it, David. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. What man is there who has been more bloodthirsty and deceitful than you. He says, shut up. And David pries your hand off. He says, let me finish. Sorry about that, David. He says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Through the abundance of your steadfast love. This is David very clearly here, hearkening back to the glory revelation of God to Moses in Exodus 34, where God declared that he abounds in steadfast love. I, I've told you often, I've already said it, that Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 is the supreme revelation from God in the Old Testament era. And I've also said before, and I want to say it again, that steadfast love is the key term of that revelation. That's the word that the psalmist especially, but really all the people of God throughout their history clung to. And it's the word that set the psalmist to singing. God's steadfast love. And I don't want you to think that in all of my emphasis on this, I'm overstating the importance of us taking God's steadfast love to heart. 
I, I mean, read Psalm 107. We're not going to do that today. I read it in our last family fellowship, and I encourage you to read Psalm 107 because it's so unique. It's so powerful. It's awesome. But the closing verse says this. It says, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 107, 43 verses long, it goes on and on about these, these stories of God's deliverance according to His steadfast love and His people being called to praise Him for His steadfast love. And that's how it closes. So let us attend to this. Let us consider. It means let us meditate long and let us meditate hard on the steadfast love of God. When God says that he abounds in steadfast love, he is saying that this is where the infinite energies of the affections of his heart are, are inclined. The infinite energies of the affections of his heart are for steadfast love. That is the foremost passion of God's heart for you, his child. It's his steadfast love. The New Testament fulfillment of this, we talked a few weeks ago in, from the book of John, chapter 1, verse 14 in particular, is grace. The New Testament fulfillment of Old Testament steadfast love is the grace of God in Jesus. The Lord declared to Moses that he is a God who abounds in steadfast love. He declares to us through his Son, who is full of grace, that he is for us. Are, are you honest, first of all, like David was? I mean, he seems in Psalm 5 to be implicating everybody else, right? Or at least everybody who's got a, a very notable record for evil, who does the, the scandalous kinds of sins. But we know at, through David's writing that he was honest about who he was. Read Psalm 32. Read Psalm 51 or 25. There's others as well, 38 and 39 where David confesses his sin. He knew his sin. Are you honest about the perversion and the permeation of sin in your heart? And I, I know we don't want to say that out loud, that our hearts are perverse. But they are. Apart from God, apart from Christ, all things you considered... All things me considered. Before Jesus, this is what we were, who we are. Our hearts are perverse. So how shall I stand in the presence of this holy God with my great sin? With my great sin. We will stand in the presence of God because though great my sin, Jesus is greater still. Because grace is greater still. My sin was condemned in Jesus' flesh that was hung up upon that tree. And by faith in Him, we received His righteousness and perfect obedient record as our own. So that Romans 5, verses 1 and 2 says, since we have been justified, declared righteous, by faith, we have peace with God now through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then listen to this. Through Him, through Christ, 
we have also obtained access. Who will dwell in God's house? Through Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. How will we enter his house? How will we remain? In Psalm 52, it says, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever, David says, because you have done it. In Psalm 23, verse 6, it says, Surely goodness and mercy. And there's just this thing about Psalm 23 that made the, the translators of contemporary versions very hesitant to, to change up any wording. And so they used mercy, which is a very good word for has said. But the ESV normally consistently translates it steadfast love. So let me read it that way. Surely goodness and steadfast love shall follow me all the days of my life. And, what? And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you think about this? I mean, we, we, I can't remember when it was. Last Sunday or the Sunday before, we, we made this connection through scriptures with the house or tabernacle of God, the glory of God, and the abundance of a steadfast love. When in Exodus, you remember chapters 25 to 31 of Exodus are all about the instructions for building the tabernacle. In Exodus 35 through 40, that's the end of the book, we have the, the instructions for building. Um, not the instructions, the actual building itself. In between chapters 32 and 34, the, the existence of God's house was under threat because the people had sinned against God. And God said, I'm not going with you. That means no house, no tabernacle. And that's when Moses pleaded with God and interceded on the people's behalf and said, we, we have to have this. It doesn't matter if we live and we get in the land. If we don't have you, if we don't have your house, we're no different from anybody else. And so God relented. And he said, I will show you my glory. And he said, I abound. This is my glory. I abound in steadfast love. You see the... Okay, so you have house, glory, steadfast love. And then when the temple was built to replace the tabernacle, they finished it, and they had that dedication service with Solomon overseeing things, Solomon, third king of Israel. What did they say over and over again in worship to God as a, as a people? The glory came down to the house of God, and they said, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. When later on, after that temple had been destroyed and the exiles came out of Babylon back into Judah and they started rebuilding the first temple's successor and they laid the foundation, what did they say? They gathered together and they saw this house of God, its foundation, and they said, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And you see it again in the Psalms. These several verses that we read, Psalm 5, Psalm 52, Psalm 23, and there are others that we could go to as well, 
that talk about the house of God and how much God's people want to be there, want to, to dwell there forever. But how? Knowing their sin, the history of their nation in perverse sin. How? David answers, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. And then Jesus comes, who tabernacled among us, and in him we have seen the glory of God, full of grace and truth. In Psalm 26, it says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house. David says, I love the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 26, 8. I love the place where your glory dwells. This is what I'm, this is what I'm wanting so desperately for you. I know that you don't have the time that I do to study the Word of God. I know you have time to study the Word, but you don't have the time that I do. This is what I want you to reap from the fruit of my studies that when you hear those words, I love the place where your glory dwells, I want you to think, Jesus! Because that's what the whole Bible is driving to. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Jesus is the dwelling place of the glory of God. That's what I want you to hear. Jesus, church family. He is the fulfillment of all that the tabernacle was, all that it meant. He is the place where glory dwells. And we have access to His glory by His grace. This is how you spell steadfast love. J-E-S-U-S. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, what does the glory revelation do for you when through eyes of faith you behold it? You have hope for righteousness that you may enter God's house because God declares in His glory He abounds in steadfast love. His Son is full of grace and truth. That's the first and that's the fundamental thing, the hope that we have from glory. It's the hope of righteousness. But also we have hope of rest. Hope of rest in this life. What hope do you go to when you're slogging through yet another problem? And problem is kind of a cheap word, but let's put everything under the umbrella of problem, okay? Little stresses and then those monstrous afflictions. Where do you go for hope? Where do you run to for relief? Where do you go to ease the pain? To get a lift? To escape? What do you gravitate to? Could be any number of things. Could be the refrigerator. For another person, it could be the gym. It could be some seemingly anonymous corner of the internet, the medicine cabinet, 
a shopping site, whether that's a physical shopping site or a digital one. Where do we go to get that lift to ease the stress? Where do we go for rest? Wherever you go, how strong is that thing to bear the weight of your burdens? Who can find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows bear? Your relief, your rest, your refuge is your God. Ultimately, that's why we're all, one reason why we're all guilty of idolatry. Because so often we go to other things besides Jesus. Listen to the word of God. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. I subscribe to this, uh, this daily email called uh, the Daily Spurgeon. And Spurgeon is the one who led me to that verse. And to tell you the truth, I couldn't remember if that was just Spurgeon being Spurgeon with his eloquence. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And uh, so I did a search and yeah, it was Psalm 81. The Lord has said, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And Spurgeon preached, lean hard, brothers, lean hard, sisters, for underneath you are the everlasting arms. If nobody smiles upon your life, if circumstances themselves seem to be turning dark against you, but yet God smiles upon you, if only God smiles upon you, is that enough for you? I love that song, take the world, give me Jesus. Is Christ enough? Would you turn to Psalm 33? While you're turning there, I'm going to read Psalm 147. If you will hope in God for your rest, church family, he will delight in your life. He will smile upon you. Take that as the assured promise of God's word. It says his delight, this is from Psalm 147, 10 and 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. That's the one, that's the life that God promises to take pleasure in and to smile upon. The one who hopes in his steadfast love. Not hopes in, you know, the, the reliefs and the comforts that the world wants to give us, but hopes in the steadfast love of God. Now, it's kind of a strange thing, isn't it? Where it says, his delight is not in a horse nor in the legs of a man. Be like, what? But look at Psalm 33, verse 16, and this will explain. Psalm 33, 16. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. 
and by its great might, it cannot rescue. And so that's what the Lord was referring to when he spoke of, you know, the strength of a horse and the legs of a man. The, the legs being their strongest part. That doesn't save. A warrior's strength will not save. The strength of a horse will not save. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. David so often found himself in peril. You know, sometimes his struggles and circumstances were long dark. And other times the crisis was very uh, immediate. The, the, the peril was, you know, looming right over him. And not very often in the narratives that describe those crises do we have you know, a, a, an idea of, of David meditating upon the word of God and encouraging himself. But there's this one passage where it was before he was king. And um, David, well, there was a bunch of Amalekites who took advantage of the absence of David and his men from their camp. And these Amalekites came in and stole their wives and their children. And when David and his men returned... The Bible says that David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Now, not only had David's own family been taken, but compounding his sorrow in this circumstance was that it says in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 30, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter and soul, each for his sons and daughters. Of course. But then it says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Well, how? How did he strengthen himself? Did he sit down on the ground and cross his legs and do some funny thing with his hands and do a bunch of chants and empty his mind? That's not Christian meditation, by the way that we empty our minds. In Christian meditation, we fill our minds. And that's what David did, and that's how he strengthened himself always. He went to the Word of God. I don't think we have to be the proverbial fly on the wall in that situation to know what David said. If I was a betting man, I would say that Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 was tumbling through his mind, and said steadfast love was on his lips. Because many times in the scriptures, you, you know you have those uh, inscriptions above the psalms that tell the situation, the, the setting for the psalm. And many of them that uh, talk about a setting of immediate danger for, for David, um, in that he talks about the steadfast love of God. And I'll give you an example of this. From, this is from Psalm 59 if you want to go there. In Psalm 52, Psalm 54, I think, Psalm 57, and Psalm 59 all describe these circumstances of David and dealing with Saul. And you know, remember how Saul, the first king of Israel, jealous of David, wanted to eliminate him and hunted him for years. So David, 
under the stress of those circumstances so often would meditate on God's word and strengthen himself and express that on paper and it became the scriptures. He says in Psalm 59 verse 10, my God in his steadfast love will meet me. And this was the situation where Saul had sent a bunch of his men to, to surround him. You remember he was married to this, this uh, Saul's daughter, actually. And he, he told his daughter that he was coming for David. And uh, that was the situation, basically. But this is, of course, David was stressed under the peril. And he said, my God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Look at verse 14. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and, and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Where did David go for hope? Where did he go for rest, the, the hope of rest, relief, refuge? He went to God who abounds in steadfast love for his people. Not to something that the world could offer. You know, whether it was accumulating possessions or something sensual or whatever we know he did once. But this was the story of his life, to go to the steadfast love of God. Now we're going to go away from the Psalms. I want you to turn to Lamentations chapter 3. I, now as we close out the message, I would just like to pummel you with the word of God. And I think I've told you before, whenever I have just sat in the audience listening to the Word of God preached, and the preacher just read Scripture, especially one Scripture after another, the effect is so powerful to hear the very Word of God. I preached a couple messages in Lamentations at the beginning of this year. And I said then, you know, that there would be people in this room who would suffer more than they expected. Since that time, we've done six funerals at Alts Chapel. I didn't have to be a prophet to say that. We knew it was coming. We didn't know what shape the cir circumstances would take. Let's read Lamentations 3. A bunch of it, all right? And as we go in, let's think about this, okay? Circumstances are dark. Sin is dark. But God smiles upon me. What if it feels like the smile on, of God has, has left, is no more upon your life? What if that is gone too? Where do you turn for hope then? I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, speaking of God. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. 
He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his, he bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Does God afflict? If there is affliction, it is from God. Does he grieve? He most certainly does, but not from his heart. The infinite energies of his affections are for steadfast love. That's where his heart lies. That's what he longs to give. So that, he, so that although he caused grief, we know we will have compassion from God according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So will our hope perish? Will it be done for? No, we can go to God. We can rely on the steadfast love of God fulfilled through His Son. Romans chapter 8, if you would, verses 31 through the end of the chapter. I'll read this even as you're turning. It's familiar to you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's our experience in this life. But no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Meditate upon the word of God. More upon his promises than you turn over in your mind your problems and go to him for hope, for rest. I don't know what's next for you. We've done six funerals this year. I don't know what's next. Does, is disaster around the corner? Is it looming? I don't know. But I'll tell you what is next. Steadfast love is next. It's steadfast love behind and steadfast love before. It is the abundance of God's steadfast love as the solid ground underneath your feet. And it's over your head. Keep on saying to the clouds and above. Steadfast love is next. That's where we go for hope, to the God who abounds in steadfast love. And so we've said often, this does not mean that God abounds in steadfast love for his own does not mean that we know what conditions he'll create for us. That's the whole, we don't know what's next part. But we know without any doubt what character he will prove, don't we? So hold on, because as the word says, let me go to Psalm 94, when I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Jesus raised this question. He said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith in his people? What is our hope for righteousness that we may enter God's house? He abounds in steadfast love for us in his son. Where do we go for rest and relief? We go to God who abounds in steadfast love. So I just want to encourage you with the word of God to persevere in the hope of God's steadfast love fulfilled for us in Jesus and let us rejoice as God's people in the hope of the glory of God. Because we're bound for it. That's our destination. And nothing can turn us aside. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your promises.
We thank you for that unshakable kingdom of which you have made us a part. Our lives seem to shake. Our knees knock. Our hearts tremble. But your kingdom cannot be shaken. Jesus Christ is coming. We will be with Him in glory. And His prayer that we would see His glory will be answered. Even now, I pray that I pray that you would give us such a glorious spiritual vision of who you are for us in Jesus, abounding in steadfast love and full of grace, that we, your people, would hope no matter what we're facing. I know that there are some here, Father, who are going through very affliction. I pray, Father, that their hope would never feel like it has perished from you. I pray that they would trust in the abundance of your steadfast love. And I pray, Father, that you would, you would show it to them. Show us your steadfast love in Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. You're